friends, fathers, brothers. I am one of you. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran and told him, leave your country and family and go to the land I show you. So Abraham left the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran until his father died. And then God brought him here to this land where you now live. When he arrived, God gave him no inheritance here, not even one square foot of land, but he promised that eventually the whole land would belong to Abraham and his descendants. He said they would live in a foreign land where they would be oppressed as slaves for over 400 years, but the Lord would deliver them and punish the nation that enslaved them. And in the end, they would come to worship God here in this place. The Lord gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision at the time. So when he became a father to Isaac, he was obedient, and he circumcised him on the eighth day. And this continued generation after generation. When Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs of the Israelite nation. Now, the patriarchs were jealous. They were jealous of their brother Joseph, and they sold him into slavery. But God was with him. He rescued Joseph from all his troubles. He gave Joseph great wisdom and favor before Pharaoh, who appointed him governor over all of Egypt and put him in charge of the palace. But a famine came upon Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. Jacob had heard that there was still grain in Egypt, so he sent his sons, our ancestors, to buy some. When they returned a second time, Joseph revealed his identity to his brothers, and they were introduced to Pharaoh. And after this, Joseph sent for his father, Jacob, and all of his family to come to Egypt. There were 75 persons in all. Jacob died there, and our fathers after him. And they were taken to Shechem and buried in the tomb for which Abraham paid a good price to the sons of Hamor. Now, as the time drew near when God would fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. And a new king came to the throne of Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. And that king, that king exploited our people mercilessly, forcing them to abandon their newborn babies so that they would die. It was in such a time as this that Moses was born, a beautiful child in God's eyes. He was hidden in a home for three months. When they had to abandon him, it was Pharaoh's daughter who adopted him, and she raised him as her own son. Moses was taught in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was powerful in both speech and in action. When he turned 40 years old, he decided to visit his people, the Israelites, he saw an Egyptian mistreating an Israelite, and Moses came to the man's defense, and he avenged him, killing the Egyptian. Moses assumed his fellow Israelites would realize that God had sent him to rescue them, but they didn't. The next day, he visited them again, and he saw two men of Israel fighting. He said, men, you are brothers. Why are you fighting each other? And the man in the wrong pushed Moses aside. Who made you ruler and judge over us, he said. Are you going to kill me as you killed the Egyptian the other day? And when Moses heard that, he fled the country, and he lived, in as, a, he lived as a foreigner in the land of Midian. And there his two sons were born. Forty years passed, 
And in the desert near Mount Sinai, an angel appeared to Moses in the flame of a burning bush. Now, when he saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew closer, the voice of the Lord called to him, I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses shook with fear, and he dared not look. But the Lord said to him, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries, and I have come to set them free. Go. I am sending you back to Egypt. Now, this is the same man. The same man and his people that previously rejected him when they demanded, who made you the ruler and the judge over us? I mean, he was sent there to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through an angel who appeared in a burning bush. And by means of wonders and miraculous signs, he led them out of Egypt through the Red Sea and through the wilderness for 40 years. It was Moses himself who told the people of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me out of your own people. He, Moses, was with our ancestors, the assembly of God's people in the wilderness when the angel spoke to him at Mount Sinai, and there Moses received life-giving words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to listen to him. Instead, they rejected Moses, and in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what has become of this Moses who brought us out of Egypt. So they made an idol shaped like a calf. And they sacrificed to it. And they celebrated over this, this thing that they had made. So God turned away from them and abandoned them to serve the stars of heaven as their gods. In the book of the prophets, it is written, was it to me you were bringing sacrifices and offerings during these 40 years in the, the wilderness, O Israel? No. You carried pagan gods, the shrine of Moloch, the star of your god, Rephan, and all the images that you made to worship them. So I will send you into exile as far away as Babylon. Our ancestors carried the tabernacle with them through the wilderness. It was constructed according to the plan that God had shown to Moses. And when Joshua led our ancestors in battle against the nations that God drove out of this land, the tabernacle was taken with them into their new territory. And it stayed there until the time of King David. And David, David found favor with God. And he asked for the privilege of building a permanent temple for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who actually built the house for him. But the Most High God does not live in temples made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that, asked the Lord? Could you build me such a resting place? Didn't my hands make both the heavens and the earth? Oh, you stubborn people. Your hearts are calloused. You're deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, and that is what you now do. Name me one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, whom you betrayed and murdered. 
You had God's law handed to you by angels, a free gift, and you squandered it. Now that was very intense and also very powerful coming from Stephen. Wouldn't you agree, Rocky Peak? And those were the last words that Stephen spoke while he was on trial. When the Jewish leaders heard this, they were absolutely furious. He was accusing them of doing what Israel had done and always had done, rejecting the God that loved them and killing the leaders that he had sent them. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, he hardly notices. His eyes were fixed and gazed steadily upon the heavens, and there he sees in the unseen realm and he looks and he sees the glory of God and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father and he tells the people, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at the right hand of God. And Rocky Peak, that statement, that Jesus was the one who they had killed, standing in his rightful place, he stands with me in my defense, whew, the religious leaders could not hold it together any longer. They covered their ears. And they began shouting. They rushed at Stephen and they dragged him out of the city and they began to stone him. But even as they began to stone him, Stephen takes on the same posture as Jesus and he cries out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And while he was standing, sitting there on his knees with a heart full of love, he says, Lord, don't charge them for this sin. And with that last desperate cry to save them, Stephen breathed his last breath. Well, good morning, Rocky Peak. <laughs> great to see you. Wasn't that awesome? It's so great. I love John and, and Hannah. We're going to be talking about that today. But uh, my name's Michael. I'm one of the pastors. And uh, if it's your very first time here, a special welcome to you. Uh, as our guest, and we just hope that uh, God meets you in a powerful way, and this makes a real difference in your life. But we're going to be going to our time of teaching right now. Inside the program is a green and white message note sheet we use every week, uh, so I encourage you to take that out, and uh, we're going to follow along. And so if you guys are ready to go, I'm ready to jump in. You guys ready to go? Let's go. Okay, let's pray. God, we're just excited to be here and to continue this new series, uh, Into the Danger, what happens when we listen and follow you into those places in our life that are scary, that are hard that are difficult, you're calling us to follow. When we step in, you meet us, and you transform us, and you use us. We carry out our purpose, and God, we just pray that today will be the next step in our journey of experiencing the reality of uh, what happens when we follow you into the danger, and we pray in your name. Amen. Well, today we're uh, continuing our series, kind of a new series, that is called Sent Into the Danger. And for those of you who are brand new, um, this is actually the second in a, a series of series uh, that's based on one of the longer books of our New Testament called the book of Acts. And so, so far in this series, we've watched as this early movement of Jesus is launched about two months after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, right in Jerusalem, right where he was executed and rose. Uh, about two months later, it starts off with 120 followers of Jesus and rapidly grows, expands over the next few months uh, to about 10 to 15,000. But along with that, um, there's also coming some, a rising wave of persecution for the religious leaders 
And uh, last week we began to look at a key event that's going to be like the match to the flame that lights this uh, kind of firestorm wildfire of persecution that's going to break out against the early Christians, that's going to cause them to flee for their lives and to leave uh, Jerusalem, the surrounding areas of Judea and Jerusalem. And so uh, today we're going to pick up that event again. So if you have your Bibles, you have your apps, let's go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 7 and verse 1. There in your note sheet is uh, a, a section called Stephen's Story, uh, Turning the Tables. And I want to give you just kind of an overview of where we're going. What you just heard today was a speech of Stephen, this young rising leader uh, in the church of Jesus who is put on trial before the Sanhedrin. Uh, it's the same group that had, um, had put Jesus on trial uh, you know, six months, a year, 18 months, not sure exact time frame, but along there, uh, before. Uh, and and so the, the same group that had found Jesus guilty of blasphemy, same high priest, Caiaphas, and so on. And so uh, there's this character, Stephen, that we met last week. And so uh, he's come to Jesus. Uh, he's come from, a, of course, a Jewish background. They're all Jewish at this point. Um, he's come from a kind of a Greek Hellenistic Jewish background, He's gone through this major paradigm shift, come to believe that Jesus is the long-promised Messiah. He knows his Bible really well. The prophecies all fit. He gives his life to Jesus, and he gets a good dose, if you know what I mean. He, he's running hard after Jesus. Uh, he's described as full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit. And so when the early church needs to find uh, seven leaders to lead uh, kind of a, a growing ministry to widows and food distribution, uh, he is one of the men chosen. And so he steps into that position, and God continues to work in his life and release new gifts, and he begins to do some signs and wonders. He begins to do some public teaching in a synagogue of the freedmen, showing that Jesus is the Messiah, and this is going to get him into trouble. And so he is going to be arrested and indicted. He's going to be brought before the Sanhedrin, this group of 70 leaders, top leaders of Israel, kind of a slash between, uh, uh, between say, our Senate and our Supreme Court, led by the high priest of Israel, same, same man who presided over Jesus' execution. And he's brought before him, and, and here are the accusations. The accusations are that you are anti-law. Uh, anti pay attention, there's two main accusations. You're anti the law of Moses, kind of anti-Moses, and you're anti the temple uh, here in Jerusalem, and therefore you're anti-God. And so this amounts to a charge of blasphemy, which is the same charge that was, was uh, levied against Jesus, and it's, it comes with the death penalty. It's a very serious situation. So he's brought up there, he's on trial, uh, and now uh, Stephen is going to be given a chance to speak and to defend himself. And so what we have is, is the longest sermon in the book of Acts, what we're going to cover today. And uh, this is going to be historic. And so it's the longest message. And in this message, I'm sure it's a synopsis, it's a short version, it's a summary. I'm sure it went on much longer than what we're going to read. But Luke is giving us the highlights. And there's three main points that, um, that Stephen is making in this defense. And I want to highlight them now because if you were just to read it, honestly, my guess is by the time you got done, you just go, well, I'm not really sure what happened there. You know, you would follow it, but there'd be no sense of like, what, what's he saying? Where's he going? What's his defense? Uh, once I point it out, I think it'd be obvious. All right, so there's three main points that he wants to make. And there in your note sheet, under that section, Stephen's story, turning the table, I've, I've turned these into bullets. And so the first, the first uh, point that Stephen's going to be making is that he is a true Jew. The accusations, you're anti-Moses, you're anti-law, you're anti-temple, you're anti-Israel. And he's going to say, no, I'm one of you. I love the law of God. I love the law of Moses. I love the temple. 
uh, that, that I'm, I'm one of you. And so he's going to be connecting with his audience. And he'll be doing that all the way through. A uh, second, uh, second point that he's going to be making in this message is that uh, they, not him, uh, that they, Israel has under, misunderstood the story God is telling in their nation and where this story is going. They misunderstood their own scriptures. So the accusation is you're anti-Moses, you're anti-temple, you don't honor our story as a nation. His defense is going to be, no, no, I am honoring, you have misunderstood your own story. So let me explain it to you. Uh, the, third, the third point that he's going to be making is that the nation of Israel has a long history of rebellion. It goes back to the very beginning, even back to Moses and Mount Sinai. They have always rejected the leaders and the prophets God has sent to them. And so you want to make sure that you're not doing that again in real time right now because he's sent the ultimate prophet, uh, the ultimate uh, leader to rescue us like Moses rescued Israel, and that's, his name is Jesus. Right? So those are the three main points. So what I'm going to do is I'm not going to walk through verse by verse uh, step by step the whole passage, what I'm going to do is pick out uh, certain passages to kind of illustrate these points. John already kind of read through the whole thing. We're going to jump around a little bit to kind of illustrate these three main points so we follow his argument, all right? So if you have your Bibles, um, we're going to pick it up in chapter 7. We'll start at verse uh, 1. And so uh, the high priest is going to ask Stephen, uh, uh, picture this very august uh, situation, a lot of gravitas in this room, very marble lined. It's in the temple, uh, uh, rotunda, he's in the center. And so he, uh, the, the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? Are you anti-temple? Uh, are you anti-law of Moses? Are you anti-God? Are you a heretic, basically? And so uh, he's going to answer. Now, his, he's going to start by identifying himself, no, it's not true. I'm a true Jew. I'm one of you. And the way he's going to do this is by reciting the history of Israel. This was a common defense mechanism uh, in trials to kind of show that you know the history. And so uh, remember, as far as we know, he doesn't have any notes, right? He's just going off the top. And so he's going to demonstrate that I know the law, I love the law, I love God, I love our story, and he's just going to recite. In the process, he's going to be gaining himself a lot of credibility because he knows the word. He's an apt teacher of the word. We saw that last week. And so he just begins kind of reciting some of the history. And so he says, to this he replied, brothers and fathers. Notice the identification. We're in this together. He said, the God of glory. Now let's say that together. The God of what? glory. Catch that. That becomes important later. His story starts today with the God of glory appearing to Abraham. Don't forget that. He says, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was still living in Mesopotamia uh, in modern day Iraq while he was still in, uh, before he lived in Haran. So God said, leave your country and your people and go to the land I will show you. Of course, it's Genesis 12. And so he left the land of Chaldeans. He settled in Haran and after the death of his father, then God sent him to the, the land we are now living, to a land of Israel. But he gave him no inheritance, no property rights, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God did promise him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land. They would one day own this place. Even though at that time, Abraham had no child. So even though there's no child, no inheritance, that's the promise. So God spoke to him in this way. This is from Genesis 15. For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. What country is that? What's he talking about? Egypt. Good, three of you. That's pretty good. So um, it's a good thing I'm explaining this. All right, so 
For 400 years, your descendants will be in a country not your own, like Egypt, for example. And they'll be enslaved, and they'll be mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterwards, they will come out, and they'll worship me in this place, in Israel. And so again, God gave Abraham this covenant of circumcision, this sign of special relationship. And Abraham became the father of Isaac, and he circumcised him after eight days after his birth. And later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. And of course, they became the 12 tribes of Israel. So all he's doing is residing their history uh, I'm one of you. He's showing he knows her story, loves her story. Now, we won't read, continue on, but if we continue on at this point, he's going to go on and talk more about their story. He's going to talk about how Joseph came along, how the nation ended up in Egypt, how then uh, after 400 years, God appears to Moses at the burning bush and go get my people. And so Moses goes in the Exodus and Pharaoh and the, the Red Sea parting and all the miracles and they come to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, God's going to show up and God's going to speak and give them the Ten Commandments. And then Moses goes up on the mountain for 40 days. And while they're up there, they begin worshiping the golden calf. And when he comes down, uh, uh, God says, I want to live in the people. And they build the tabernacle of the nation where God can dwell with them. And later on, years later, the tabernacle becomes the temple when David and Solomon come along. And so he's just beginning to lay out their history. I know our history. I love our history. I want to point out one thing he says, though, that is particularly important in chapter 7 and verse 37. In the midst of the Moses narrative, he says this, 737. He says, this is the Moses who told the Israelites, uh, notice you 38, uh, he was in the assembly, talking about Moses, he was in the assembly in the wilderness when the, with the angel of the Lord who spoke to him on Mount Sinai when he got the Ten Commandments, and with our ancestors, and he received, what are the next two words? He received what? Living words. Accusation, you're anti-law of Moses. You're anti-word of God. He says, no, I love our story. I love our history. I love what God's done in our nation he says, to me, the, the, the law of Moses is the living words of God. You see, so he's identifying with them. Now, second point he's going to make in this, in this message, the second bullet there, is that um, Israel is the one that's missing the story, and the scripture is not him. And so uh, the accusation, of course, is that you're introducing a new character of this story, this whole Jesus character. He doesn't really belong in our story. You're not honoring the law. You're not honoring the temple. That's our story. And what he's going to say is, no, no, no. Everything in the story is leading up to this. And he says, you're missing what the law of Moses said. You say you love Moses, but let me, he said, you're forgetting one important thing that Moses said. And he's going to go back and he's going to quote Deuteronomy 18.15. Now, Deuteronomy 18.15 was a very, uh, a very powerful, important verse for the early movement of Jesus. Uh, they saw it as a prophecy of the Messiah. Many in Israel at their time outside the church saw it as well. So here's how what Moses said. In Deuteronomy, it's right before Moses goes in, uh, the nation of Israel goes in the promised land. He's not going to go. He's about to die. So the question is, who's going to speak for God to us as a nation after you've, got, after you've left? You've been speaking for God for us for 40 years. Who is going to speak to us for God? And so Moses makes this promise that after me, God will raise up another prophet. He will be from amongst the nation. He'll be a Jew. Um, and that wh whatever he says, you better believe and follow because anyone who doesn't listen to that prophet will be cut off from his people. Now, at the time, um, and on the surface, this seems to be a prophet, a prophecy about maybe the next prophet that God would speak through. Maybe it's Joshua, as God speaks to Joshua, right? And then the long line of prophets that God would send through the nation of Israel to speak for him. But as the rabbis over the years reflected on this, 
many came to believe that this was ultimately a prophet, uh, a prophecy about the ultimate prophet that would one day come, that second Moses, the one who would be the ultimate prophet who would speak for God, a prophecy about Messiah. And so he's going to take them back to that prophecy. And so if you look at chapter 7 in verse, uh, verse 37, he says, this is the Moses who told Israel, and this is a quote from Deuteronomy 18, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your people. And, of course, these men know the Bible like the back of their hands. They know the second half of that verse. Anyone who doesn't listen to him will be cut off from the people. That is the, that's the, the, the claim that, that Stephen's been making in the synagogue. This is the same verse that Peter quoted back in chapter 3. The claim is, is that God has sent this final prophet. His name is Jesus, and he has been proven by the signs and wonders he did, and most of all the resurrection, that he is the prophet of God. And so what, what Stephen's arguing is that, no, I'm not anti-Moses. I'm pro-Moses. This is a, Jesus is the fulfillment of our story. But then remember, the second accusation was that Stephen is anti-temple. And what Stephen wants them to understand is that they have misunderstood the role the temple plays in the nation. Yes, the temple was an incredible gift. God, through David and Solomon, built the temple. Uh, it's a place where God would meet with the people. It's an incredible. But in current Judaism of his day and of Jesus' day, uh, remember their deaths are only about a year apart, maybe 18 months. In, in that day, the role of the temple, it's hard for us to understand is modern-day Christ as far as the role of the temple in Israel. I mean, for the Jew, it was the place where heaven meets earth. It was a place where God dwells. It's the place uh, many Jews believed at that time. It's the place where the creation of the world started at the temple. Uh, the, their view of the temple has just grown so large. The thought that the temple would ever be done away with was just like uh, heretical. And yet, this is what Jesus had said, the temple was going to go. That the temple was a picture of a greater reality that would one day come when God himself would come to dwell with his people in the body of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And Jesus would come to create a greater reality that God would come to live in us by his spirit and we become the temple. So the temple, as important as it was, was a picture of a greater reality. And they had over-exaggerated this, and they'd kind of put God in a box, like he lives in the temple. It's a beautiful box, it's a big box, but they had God in a box. And so he's going to say, you know what, that you have over-exaggerated that, and the way he's going to prove this is taking them back to their own scriptures, to something Isaiah said. And so if you look with me at chapter uh, 48, uh, for, I mean, chapter, uh, verse 47, 747. He says, uh, he talks about Solomon and how Solomon built the house for God, the temple. And he says, however, he's speaking to the, the Sanhedrin, the Most High doesn't live in houses made by human hands. He's bigger than that. And he says, as the prophet says, and this is a quote from Isaiah 66. Isaiah says, God says, heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. Like, how can you build a house for me? Like, it's a little small, right? He said, what kind of house will you build for me? He says, or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things, all of creation? So he's taking them back and saying, 
hey, I'm, I'm not anti-law, I'm not anti-Moses, I'm not anti-word, I'm not anti-temple, I embrace all those realities. Those realities were speaking of a greater reality of the prophet who would one day come, who would be the greater temple, and so you've misunderstood your story. And then number three, the third thing he wants to point out is how the nation of Israel has this long history of rebellion. It goes all the way back to Moses. Now, I don't know if you remember this, but as, as John was reciting, um, when Moses was 40 years old, he, uh, he, saw two of the Egypt, uh, he saw two of his Hebrew brothers. Remember, he's a prince. They're slaves. He sees two of the Hebrew uh, brothers fighting, and he tries to step in and say, hey, hey you shouldn't be fighting. And they resent him, and, and one of them says, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Well, the answer is God, right? Um, and, and so what Stephen's going to say, this becomes a pattern for the nation of Israel, that even after he comes, splits the Red Sea, the signs, the wonder, they're going to rebel against Moses and his leadership their whole lives. And this becomes a pattern for the nation, that God, the nation of Israel always, or not always, but often, throughout their history, has rebelled against the leaders, the, the, uh, the, the, the prophets, the deliverers that God has sent. And his point is, you're making that mistake again by rejecting the greatest leader of all, the Messiah. And so if you pick up uh, in verse uh, 35, he says, this is the same Moses that they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself. Through the angel who appeared to him in the bush, he led them out of Egypt. He performed wonders and signs in Egypt, then at the Red Sea, and for 40 years in the wilderness. Um, but if you skip down to verse 39, but our ancestors refused to obey him. And you, know, you claim to be loving the law, but our, our history has, has not followed Moses all these years. And he says, um, instead they rejected him, and their hearts they turned back to Egypt. Remember, remember at Mount Sinai, after Moses uh, God comes and speaks, goes up on the mountain for 40 days. Right away, they break away, build, uh, build a golden calf, and begin breaking the first two of the Ten Commandments. No other gods and, and no graven images. And he says, so they, verse 40, they told Aaron, his brother, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. And that was the time when they made the idol in the form of a calf. I love that language. That was the time. Remember when? Uh, the, uh, the whole golden calf thing. Uh, and they brought sacrifices to it, and they reveled in what their own hands had made. And so his point is, this is the start of the history of their nation, and this is going to be uh, the, the first step in a long history of idolatry and rejection of God. And so God turned away from them. He gave them over to the worship over the course of their years of the sun, moon, and stars. They began to worship the planets. And this agrees with what's written in the prophet, uh, prophets. And this is Amos writing, you know, hundreds of years later, looking back at their history and God says, did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness? Were you really worshiping me? He says, the reality is you've taken up the tabernacle of Molech, one of the gods of Canaan, and the star of your god, Rephan, the idols that you made to worship. And therefore, God says, I will send you into exile beyond bounds. So if you know the history of uh, Israel, it's a, it's a long history of idolatry and the final judgment where they would lose their land because of the rejection of God, the leaders, the prophets, uh, and they would go into exile. All right, so, 
So Stephen is laying out this case, three main points. Hey, listen, I'm one of you. I'm not the enemy. I'm not a heretic. I love Yahweh. I love the word. I love Moses. I love the temple. I love what God's done in our nation. The problem is you've misunderstood the story. Let me explain it to you. Remember the whole prophecy about the prophet who had come. Remember the temple, it could never really contain God. It was always, God was always bigger than that. And, and as a nation that we have always rebelled against what God's doing. And so I, I want you to catch this. Here, here's what's going on. I think if we're there, that this is how it works, that as Stephen starts his speech, if you could look around the room, the Sanhedrin, everyone is sitting there like this. They're ready to lynch him. This guy's a heretic, let's get him. But I think as he tells a story, as he shares the story of their nation, as he shows he's a gifted teacher, he knows what he's talking about, I think they're relaxing. I, I think they're beginning, hey, maybe this guy's not so bad after all, um, that he knows the nation. And I think they would see themselves very much on his side. That's true. That's what the nation did do. That's horrible. So glad we're not like that. Right? Um, and, and I think that they're, they're relaxing. And what Stephen has done is he set them up for, like, in wrestling, the perfect reversal. Um, he has set them up. They've lowered their guard. This guy's not so bad. He's, yeah, we agree with what he's saying. Um, but like a skillful playwright or a skillful novelist, what he's been doing in this long kind of rambling message is skillfully weaving in these three storylines, these three plot lines. And now they never see it coming. He is suddenly going to turn, bring those storylines together. And like Nathan said to David, you are the man. He's going to bring the accusation. At this moment in the trial, the accused is going to become the accuser. I love this. In, in England, they talk about when you're in court, they talk about being in the dock. You're the person in the dock. It's like he is going to turn. No longer is he in the dock. They, as the leaders of the nation, are on trial. What will they do? And so he turns on a dime. And uh, in verse 51, he turns and he says, all of a sudden, I think they've been going, yep, yep, yep. And all of a sudden, he said, you stiff-necked people. And just let me tell you, if anyone ever calls you stiff-necked, like what's coming next is not good. I'm just telling you, that, that is not like a term of endearment, right? The, what's interesting about this is that when the nation of Israel rebelled against God at Mount Sinai with the golden calf, this is what God called the nation of Israel, stiff-necked. He is choosing his words very carefully. He's saying, you are them. Uh, later on in Jeremiah, uh, this is only, you know, uh, 50 years before the exile. Uh, God speaks to the nation of Israel. They're into idolatry, hypocrisy. And God speaks to the nation. And he says, your hearts are uncircumcised. You may be circumcised in your bodies as having a special relationship, but you're no different than the pagan nations. Your hearts are not mine. And so he's going to reach back in their history as this master teacher he starts off with accusation number one, you're stiff-necked like Israel at the time of Moses. You're uncircumcised like Israel at the time of Jeremiah. And so he says, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit, which is a description of the nation of Israel and the wilderness in Isaiah. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? 
They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. Remember who he's talking to? He's talking to the same judicial body that had executed Jesus a year before. He's talking to the same judicial body who earlier in Acts had brought Peter and John in, warned them not to teach in the name of Jesus on threat of death, and then whipped them. That's his thing. And he is just coming on. I love this. He says, he says uh, you have betrayed and murdered him. Then catch this. You who have received the law, you, know, you, you claim to honor, you have received the law given through angels, but have not obeyed it. And so I think the Sanhedrin is caught completely off guard. They never, it's like a great joke you never saw coming, but the joke's on you, not so funny. And so all of a sudden, it's like um, they turn, and when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious, and they gnashed their teeth. Now, I've never been so angry I've gnashed my teeth, but I'm assuming you've got to be pretty mad, right? And, uh, and, so, and so Stephen, though, he's just getting started. He's like full of the Holy Spirit. And that's the key to his story. I mean, God is just all over him. And he looks up into heaven in the, in the courtroom. He just kind of looks up beyond that. It's like this vision, like the, like the, you know, the, the ceiling goes away. He just sees, uh, he sees heaven. And he looks up and he sees the glory of God. Now remember how this story started? The glory of God, the God of glory appeared to Abraham. Now the God of glory is appearing to Stephen. He's making a claim that like, I'm seeing what Abraham saw, right? And worse than that, he says, I'm gonna see Jesus right there. Now, to understand this, uh, you have to go back a year in time. Jesus is on trial, same Sanhedrin. They are working overtime. They brought in false witnesses just like Stephen. They're working overtime to find something that they're trying to, remember they worked all through the night. Remember they rest in the middle of the night. They're looking for hours, trying to find something to charge Jesus with. They're desperate. They brought in false witnesses. They won't work. They've acclaimed of him. Uh, they made the same accusation. He's anti-temple. They can't get him on that. And so finally, out of frustration, uh, the, the, the Caiaphas, the high priest, just goes for the jugular and just says, I'm going to lay a trap, see if he steps in. He just goes right for it. He says, so you just tell me, are you the Messiah? Are you the son of the living God? It's like, who's going to admit that in this situation? Let's see if he's stupid enough to step into that trap. And Jesus, just full on, says, yes. He said, and in the future, you will see the Son of Man, which is Daniel's title for the Messiah. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of glory, King of creation, coming on the clouds of heaven in fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. That had happened a year before. And it's at that point, the high priest had tore his robe, which was an official sign of blasphemy, the place goes crazy, and they say, that's it. We've got our conviction. Let's take them off and get executed. Now, you need to remember that that was a year ago. Same people, same high priest, the claim that I will be sitting at the right hand of glory, uh, of God in coming in glory. And so now Stephen, all of a sudden, opens the skies open. He sees Heaven, he sees the glory of God, the same God that appeared to Abraham is appearing to him. And look what he says. Look who's next to this God of glory. And it says, uh, he says, look, verse 30, uh, 56, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What Jesus told you a year ago has happened. 
He is king of creation. You killed him. He rose. He's been crowned king over all creation. And he is standing to receive me. He is standing with me in my trial. He is standing for me and against you. King of creation, Messiah. I see him right here, right now. And they, they go crazy. It's like, I mean, they go, this is going to be an execution. It's going to be an official execution, but I'm telling you, it has every feel of a lynching because they have gone crazy. And it says that this, they covered their ears, which is an official sign of blasphemy. It's an official sign. I can't hear this. This is too unholy. So they cover the ears and they yelled at the top of their voices and they rush him. And they drag him outside the city because in the Old Testament, in Leviticus, it said if someone blasphemes, he is to be stoned, but outside the city. So they're following the letter of the law while they're killing uh, the spokesman of Jesus. And so, um, uh, meanwhile, and this is interesting, you know, Luke often does this, right? I've told you this throughout. He'll kind of insert this uh, kind of bit, bit character that's going to become important later on. A cameo appearance. And so um, it says, meanwhile, the witnesses, the law required that when you stone someone for blasphemy, when you execute someone, the witnesses in court who brought the accusations, they have to be the, the throw the first stones. They have to have their, their, their skin in the game, so to speak. You can't just make the accusation. You, you have to have your skin in the game. So uh, they're going to have to take off their coats to throw well. You know how that is. You know, get a wind up. And... Um, <laughs> And so they don't want to lose their coat. Someone's going to steal my coat. And so it says, um, meanwhile, the witnesses, they lay their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, uh, we don't know exactly how this execution took place. We do know from later on from the Mishnah that typically when someone was executed uh, for blasphemy, that they would often take them to a high place and throw them off some sort of cliff or a high embankment. Uh, and then if that didn't kill them, then they would stone them. And I, wanna, I want you to ca- catch, this is a brutal way to die. And I want you to take a second just to use your imagination. Uh, if you're being stoned to death, it's not like they take a 20, you know, 20-ton stone and drop it on your dead. It's like these are stones that are being thrown. So, they're, you know, they're, they're, they, they can't be too big. And so it's a long and brutal way to die. You're going to be lacerations on your body. You're going to have ribs broken. You're going to have bones likely broken. You're going to have your face smashed in. Um, And and it's just going to come. The pelting is going to go on until you can't hold up anymore and you begin to drop. And at some point, you'll lose consciousness. Uh, It's it's interesting. Later in Acts, the apostle Paul will be stoned. And they actually, um, the people stoning him, leave him for dead, assuming he's dead, but he's not. He's in a coma, and he comes out of it. Um, and so, um, so it's a very brutal way to die. And so what's fascinating, though, is, um, is how he ends his life. Um, and we'll talk about this later, but there's a lot of parallels here about the way he ends his life and the way Jesus, a year, year and a half before, left it ended his life. And so uh, while they're stoning him, Stephen prays, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. You may remember when Jesus is on the cross right before he died, he said, uh, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's interesting that, um, that now uh, Stephen is calling Jesus Lord Jesus, uh, the name for God in the Old Testament, Lord Jesus. 
and he is committing his eternal destiny not to Yahweh, but to Lord Jesus, which tells you what a high view of Jesus they have, even at this point, this understanding. Um, and so he prays that, and then as he falls to his knees uh, through the pelting of the stones, he cries out, loud voice, uh, screams out, uh, amazing, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And so you remember when Jesus died, I said something similar, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. Um, the student has become like the teacher. We'll come back to that later. Um, and so he, with this, he falls asleep, which means he dies. And then Saul, this new character that you know, we don't know anything about yet, um, he approves of the killing. Luke wants us to know that Saul sees this as a righteous kill. Saul sees this as a good shooting. He sees, um, he sees Stephen as a heretic, uh, someone that has claimed the, uh, that Jesus of Nazareth, a, 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 a deceived peasant, um, a false Messiah, is actually the king of Israel. Uh, he's claimed he's at the right hand of God. Uh, he, he sees this as heresy. And in the Old Testament, this would classify as blasphemy. And that uh, the Old Testament said you should, you should stone a blasphemer. And so Saul is feeling really good about this execution. This is a righteous kill. This is what God would want us to do. We are carrying out the law of God. It's important for us to understand that, that he sees this as a righteous thing. He's all in. Yes, this man is getting exactly what he deserves we are protecting the God of Israel. We are protecting the faith. We're protecting future generations. We have got to stop this movement. It's a righteous thing that's just happened, all right? So that's, that's the passage. Now, in the time that we have today, I want to highlight a couple big picture principles, really important for us as followers of Jesus, understanding what Luke is communicating to us. Number one, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Uh, and, and secondly, uh, what Jesus is after, what the whole movement of Jesus is after in our lives. What does it mean to be a follower? What is Jesus after in our lives? And so there in your note sheet, you have a section. This is called Stephen's Story, Two Life Lessons. And we'll take shorter time in the first one, longer in the second. Let's jump in. The first thing that, that Luke wants us to understand as he writes this account for us is that the story of Israel is the story of Jesus. And this is critical. As modern-day Christ followers, we often miss this. I think we often look at, at the story of Jesus as almost like the start of something new. Uh, we look at it as like, well, yeah, we know that a lot happened in the Old Testament. We know that there was a nation of Israel and all these stories and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and these uh, Moses and, and Temple and, and Isaiah and all these things happened. Um, but we're not really sure where that really fits into our lives or our story. We kind of see it as like this was sort of God's plan A, and it just didn't really work out. It was really a sad story. And so we started a new story with the story of Jesus, and that's what the story, that's kind of where we're a part. And what Luke wants us to understand is that the story of Israel is the story of Jesus. That this story of Israel, the story of Abraham being called, the story of Isaac and circumcision, the story of Jacob, the 12 patriarchs, Joseph, uh, uh, Egypt, uh, Moses, burning bush, uh, Red Sea, uh, deliverance, Mount Sinai, Ten Commandments, golden calf, tabernacle being built, temple being built, the, the prophets, uh, that, it's all, that, ever, that everything that happened before Jesus is leading, excuse me, it's leading up to Jesus. That like, if you compare us to a novel, that it's like, like God is telling a story, these, these, these are the opening chapters where God is weaving themes in that are going to be fulfilled in Jesus, in Messiah. 
Uh, and so that when, when Jesus comes, the accusation that the Sanhedrin is making is this is a new character you're introducing into our national story. He doesn't belong. He doesn't have a place. He's not an authentic character. And what Stephen is claiming is, no, everything that has happened has led up to that. He is the prophet that was come. He is the ultimate temple of God, that God has come to be with us in Jesus, right? So that the story that God has been telling the nation of Israel, uh, it's all leading up to Jesus. Now, this is very important. One of the things that I told you the very first week we started this series, back in September of 2012, no, uh, when we first started this series, uh, is that Acts is apologetic. Yeah, I don't know if you remember that, Acts is apologetic. In other words, that one of the reasons that Luke is writing Acts is to explain to the first century world, both Jew and Gentile, uh, why the story of Jesus is true. There are many common criticisms against the story of Jesus. If you're a Jew in the first century, the common criticism is that the movement of Jesus is anti-law, it's anti-Moses, it's anti-temple, it's not our story. And so he's showing that it is. You see, in the speeches, uh, this is very important to understand as we go through Acts, the speeches in Acts, the sermons in Acts are not haphazard. The speeches in Acts are there to explain the message of Jesus. You see, as Luke puts together the book of Acts, he's got narrative that tells you what happens. He has the speeches that tell you what the movement's about. So you got the movement and the message. The movement is what happened. He can describe that. But how does Luke explain to Theophilus, who he's writing to, and all other readers who will read Acts, how does he explain not just what happened, but what is the message of Jesus? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? It's in the speeches he explains that. And so in the sermons of Peter early on, in the sermon of Stephen, critical, uh, in, the, in the sermons of Paul later on, what he's doing, he's helping us to understand what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus. One of the common criticisms of Christianity in the first century, the Gentile world was unimpressed because they said, this is a new, it's a new movement. It's a novelty. In the ancient world, they respected things that are old. Things that are old have gravitas. You know, the gods, the Mount Olympus, that goes way back. You know, you go back to Troy, and there's history to it. There's gravitas. And Luke is showing that the story of Jesus is not a new story. This goes back way hundreds and thousands of years. It goes back to Abraham, and God has been building this. And so, so what Luke is doing in this message is he's showing the message of Israel is the message of Jesus. And what I want you to catch, this is so critical for us because when a man or woman comes to Jesus, the story of Israel becomes our story. We become a part of this story. This is why the Apostle Paul so often will say that if you've come to Christ, you are a child of Abraham, you see. That we become part of this people of God story, the Israel story, when we come to Christ. We become part of this story, and that's huge implications for all kinds of life. And we'll come back to that throughout this series. Number two, but this is the part for us today that's, that's more practical just for today, is that the story of Jesus is our story. 
In other words, Jesus didn't come, catch this, just to forgive us. He came to transform us, to be like him. His story is our story. As he was, so we will be. That's the message of the New Testament. So if you, if you look at the story of Israel and say, okay, so it's the story of Israel. It's the story of Jesus. What is that story? Well, the story is about a world that went wrong, right, back in Genesis. So the world that went wrong, rebelled against God, death, decay came. And, and into that death and decay, God chooses one man, Abraham. And he promises that through, that, through one man, he will bring, uh, that he will one day bless the whole world. It's a promise of Messiah. The problem is this, this, this nation that's supposed to be the solution to the problem is part of the problem. They're human like us. And so they respond just like we would. They rebel against God. They rebel against their leaders. So how can the solution to the problem, that's the problem itself, become a solution? And the answer is through that nation will come the true Israelite, right? The true man of Israel who will come from the nation who will rise up, and God promises when this true son of David comes, he will rescue all of creation. He will conquer death itself, that he will bring in new heavens, new earth, and that when this Messiah comes, that he will change the heart of the nation. He will not just, he will forgive them, but he will change them, and he will write the laws of God on our hearts so he can change from the inside out, transform. And so the New Testament picks up and expands on that and talks about this new age that's coming, this new heavens and new earth that's coming. When we come to Jesus, we become partakers of the new age now through the power of the Spirit. We receive the Spirit of Jesus so that as we listen and follow, we can be transformed to be like Jesus. That's the whole goal. So the whole point of following Jesus is to become like Jesus, as we often say here. Now what strikes me today is how you see that message being lived out in the life of Stephen. Uh, it's amazing. You know, if, if you were to read through Luke and Acts at one point, it would only take you two to three hours, kind of like a full-length feature film, like, you know, like a longer one. Uh, and if you were to read through Luke and Acts back-to-back, -back, remember they're written by the same author, right? They're volume one, volume two, designed to be read together. Luke about Jesus, Acts with the early church, his movement. If you were to read them back to back, there'd be certain things that you would see connections between Jesus and his people that you miss when we read it over time. Uh, for example, in this series, we've gone through uh, seven chapters of the book of Acts, and there have been 17 messages. Let's call it 17 hours, right? And so we've taken a long time to go through this. If you're reading through it, you would hit the death of Jesus in Luke 23, his resurrection, chapter 24, and you would hit the arrest of Stephen in chapter 6, probably within a half an hour. And if you did that, the similarities between the story of Stephen and Jesus would be unmistakable. You could not miss it. I want you to think about this. Jesus arrested in Jerusalem. Stephen arrested in Jerusalem. Jesus brought to court before the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas, the high priest, Stephen the same. Jesus accused by false accusers from the marketplace, same with Stephen. Accusation against Jesus, you're going to destroy the temple, same with Stephen. Uh, brought up on fa uh, uh, false charges and then charged with blasphemy of Jesus, same charge against Stephen. Executed, executed. 
But what would really strike you as you read this is the way that Stephen and Jesus died. And I referred to this earlier, but I want you to catch it. I put the verses there on your note sheet because this is what you would have just read if you read through this. Look at this in verse, uh, Luke 23. It says, so here's Jesus on the cross, right, writhing in pain. He's been, he's been there for hours hanging. And he says, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my what? My spirit. Seven chapters later, eight chapters later, Stephen's dying in the midst of his pain, being stoned. He says, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I don't think it's an accident. Jesus once said in Luke 640, he says the student, in the Greek it says disciple, when he's fully trained will be like his teacher. Stephen knows the story of Jesus. He's living the story of Jesus. He's followed Jesus. He's been filled with the Spirit like Jesus. He's been forgiven by Jesus. He's, he's been led, and Jesus has developed him, and now he's dying like Jesus. And he says there, and he follows Jesus' example in his death, Lord Jesus, would you receive my Spirit? And then it gets even better in, in the next verse. Jesus hanging on the cross does the unbelievable to his tormentors, to these unrighteous Jews who have uh, falsely condemned him, to Rome who is falsely executed, to the soldiers who have mocked him, to the religious leaders mocking at his feet. Even so, Jesus does the unthinkable. We've never seen anything like it in human history. He says, well, uh, he says in verse uh, 34, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That there from the cross, while he's dying in excruciating pain, he's praying for their salvation. He's praying that this particular sin would not keep them back. That some there would actually come to be saved by his death for them right here and now. Unbelievably, we, we fast forward a year later, whatever it is. Stephen is dying brutally. His face is cut, lacerations on his head. His bones are being broken. His body is screaming out in pain. And in the midst of that, as he's falling down, he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. This is not an accident. This is a picture of transformation. And this is the message of Acts. The message of Acts is that Jesus did not come just to forgive us, he came to transform us. And we have watched this all the way through Acts, haven't we? We've seen it time and time and time. We've seen these first apostles that were afraid of the, Rome, of, of the Jewish and Roman authorities hiding out in the upper room out of fear. And we see them two months later after the Holy Spirit comes transformed, boldly proclaiming the name of Jesus right in the same city. We saw Peter and John go before the same Sanhedrin that had executed Jesus months before and said, you have committed the greatest crime. We've watched this early uh, movement of Jesus. The apostles were so self-centered. They were so into themselves fighting over who will have the best seats in the new administration. We watch after the Holy Spirit comes. They love one another, this amazing community. They're sharing their possessions. They're doing life together. We have watched an incredible transformation. But we see it today at a high point in Stephen. This is Unbelievable. And I want you to think of Stephen's story and and what we've learned the last two weeks. We've watched as this man, a Hellenistic Jew, has gone through a tremendous paradigm shift and he has come to Jesus. His whole life he's studied the word. He knows the word like the back of his hand. 
he becomes convinced. The Holy Spirit opens his eyes. He gives his life to Jesus. Now, I talked about this last week, that he not only gave his life to Jesus, he was full in. Remember, he was full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, full of faith. You remember that? He was, he was a man fully in. Like I often say, he got a good dose. And so he is running hard after Jesus. He just wants to know Jesus and please Jesus. And people around him begin to see what God's doing in his life. So when it comes time to choosing seven men from these 10,000 believers or whatever, I'm going to pick seven, seven men to oversee his important ministry to the widows, the widows' fund, that he is one chosen because people recognize him as full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit. But that's not enough because Stephen's going to continue to grow. Can I tell you something? Every day of our life, if you're alive, it's because you're supposed to grow today. Amen. Like, like, God is not done with you. If you're not dead, he's not done. Amen. Like, like, we never stop growing. We never stop, hey, this is the top way I'm going to be used. And it's all over now. From here, it's downhill. No, no, with Jesus, it's from glory to glory. Right? And so, so Stephen never stops growing. And he's got this very important position, big responsibility, but God is stirring in his heart. Remember that last week? He's stirring in his heart. He wants to get out there personally like the apostles. He wants to share Jesus personally with his countrymen. And so he steps into the danger, and God anoints him with new gifts. He begins doing signs and wonders to authenticate the message he's bringing. And he goes to the synagogue of the freedmen. He starts sharing Christ, and they start pushing back. But God meets him in the danger, and God begins giving him words and wisdom they can't oppose. He experiences God working his life at a new level. But now it's getting really dangerous. But he doesn't back down. He continues sharing, and it leads to his arrest. And it leads to his trial. And there at the trial, we see him on trial. We see him today full of the Holy Spirit. God is working in his life in a way it's never worked before. He is speaking with power. He is speaking with conviction. And right in the middle, he has this high point of this vision of Jesus. And he sees Jesus. Men and women, this is what God had designed Stephen for from the time he was born. This day is no accident. It's no accident that Stephen's been chosen to give a final witness to the top leadership echelon of Israel. He's been chosen for this before he was born. He was raised for this. He studied the word for this. He came to Jesus for this. He developed this. He began to share Christ, and the Holy Spirit began working, giving him words. He has been prepared for this every step of the way. This is his destiny. This is his day. He has been prepared for a lifetime, and there he comes up. It is no accident that God chose Stephen, gives powerful witness against the top leaders of the land, the final witness that they will receive in Jerusalem from this type of a courtroom situation. This is no accident. God has chosen him for this hour to speak to the leaders of the nation of Israel. One final chance, one final intervention, one final challenge that Jesus is the Messiah. This is not an accident. And when he dies, and when he dies, this is not an accident. This was his destiny. God is going to use the life of Stephen to light a match of persecution. And guess what? It's going to drive out those ten or 15,000 believers to do what they should have done a long time ago. To go out and begin sharing the message of Jesus in Judea and Samaria. Remember what Jesus said? 
Go into all the world, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. And we're going to watch that happen. And guess what? As they go running for their lives, they're going to tell people wherever they go about Jesus. And the message of Jesus is going to expand and it's going to grow. This is no accident. And on top of that, God has so orchestrated that while Stephen is there dying, there's a young man watching, watching the coach, who's an official there, witness capacity. He is watching a young man die. His name is Saul, and he will never be able to get this death out of his mind. He is seeing the story of Jesus being lived out in flesh and blood before his eyes. And when when Saul of Tarsus eventually comes to Jesus, one of the things Jesus will say to him in that opening vision is, Saul, it is hard for you to kick against the goats. He said, what's that? (laughs) Well, when when oxen would be tilling a field, they're yoked up. Oxen would try to go their own way. They'd try to stop. The ox herders would have sharp sticks with a point on them called the goad. They would encourage them to keep moving. From time to time, the oxen would try to kick back. That doesn't work out so well. You kick against a sharp stick. You lose. Jesus said, why are you holding out on me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. I believe it was the death of Stephen that was one of those goats. He could not get this out of his mind. This death was not an accident. Stephen has been prepared for this his whole life. And so we've watched in the transformation of a man who comes to Jesus, who listens and follows, grows, transformed, takes one leadership position, grows, takes another leadership position, grows, filled with God's spirit, grows, takes the next step, grows, brought to before the Sanhedrin there at the moment where God needs him to speak and he carries out his life purpose. Man, when this is what I'm telling you, as followers of Jesus, there are times in our life he calls us into the danger. There are hard situations. There are new boundaries that need to be set. There are relationships that need to be left. There are decisions that need to be made. There are people that need to be shared Christ. And it's not easy. But like we learned last week, it's in the danger that God meets us, transforms us, and uses us. And we fulfill our destiny. It's in the danger that we are changed. It's in the danger that we grow. It's in the danger that we carry out the plans God has called for us. And like Watchman Nee, the famous Chinese leader, once said about this passage, he said, what are a few stones when you're seeing the glory of God? Amen. 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 Let's pray. God, as we come today and we read this inspiring story, I, I think it's hard to read it without being a little bit overwhelmed, like what would I do and I could never do that. I would never be that brave, that courageous, or have that much love for my enemies. Or, and yet, Lord, it's the beauty of the story. It's not about Stephen. It's about you. It's about what happens when you transform a life. It's about what happens when we're full of your spirit. And so, God, we pray that in our own journeys, we continue to listen, follow, take step after step, let you transform us, that we could become like you, student, like the teacher, that the story of Jesus would become our story that we'd be transformed, that we'd be used and carry out the plans. And we're thankful, God, it's not about us. It's not about our strength. It's about you being strong in us. It's about the power of your spirit being released. And as we worship, as we bring your offering, we pray you'd meet you now. You'd meet us now in a powerful way. 
and you'd speak to us courage and strength in this, from this amazing account that the same Jesus that raised, or the same Father God that raised Jesus from the dead is the one who lives in us. And therefore, we could never be in ourselves. You can be in us, but we have to say yes. We have to be surrender. We have to be willing to listen and follow, even in the danger. We pray you give us the courage to do that in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with me? Our God is, our God is strong in us. And that is the message of Acts is that Jesus didn't come simply to forgive us. He came to transform us. The same power that raised him from the dead is the power that lives in us. Amen. And that's what we're on the journey, to learn how to tap in that power, to listen and follow. And it's often as he leads us into the danger, the risk. It's where he meets us and we experience that power and transform that are used in the most amazing ways. I want to encourage you to come back next week. Obviously, it's Easter. And one thing I just want you to be aware of is that we will have a full, uh, full-on, high-def, large-screen, full-worship band uh, venue, video venue, uh, over in our student center next week. So if you come and the place is packed or whatever, just so want you to be aware of that. You may want to try it anyway. We're not sure. It's always a little hard to estimate Easter attendance. Uh, we think that we may be okay for this 9 o'clock service, but we may not. And uh, so we're going to have that over there, and that's an option for you. If you normally come to 11, uh, for sure that will be operating then. Uh, of course, if you can come Saturday night and help us create space, that's great. But uh, the important thing is you come. And next week, we're going to continue this series. And we're going to meet this young man, Saul. We're going to watch what happens when the resurrection comes into his life. And we're going to learn what happens, why the resurrection, we're calling it the greatest game changer of all history. It changes everything. And it changes us. It changes the way we relate to God. It changes the future of not just our lives, but all of creation. And so it's a great message, not only for us as believers, but for non-believers. If you have someone that you've been sharing Christ or showed any spiritual interest, be praying about that. Invite them to come and see. See what God does in their life. If God shows up and becomes a game changer for them, amen? And so uh, may the Lord of the resurrection, the Lord Jesus... The one that Stephen saw sitting at the right hand of the Father, the one who is king of creation, ascended on high, crowned king, as we saw back in chapter 1 at the ascension. May that Jesus be with you this week. And may you listen and follow as as he carries out the plan for your life, one step from another. If you're alive today, it means there's growth in your future. You're not done until you're dead. And so we're going to grow together as a church. We're going to continue pursuing Jesus. We're going to continue listening and following. We're going to watch him transform our lives. And then we're going to watch as he teaches us how to live life increasingly on mission. Share the message of Jesus with those that don't know that there is a king who is coming. And we're going to be part of his force to bring the kingdom of heaven on earth. As it is, as he said, on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? Amen. God bless you. Experience the resurrection this week. Come ready for next week. <laughs>